Oh Lord, we exalt you this morning. We thank you that your greatness is so manifest to us that when we consider your work in our hearts, the salvation of our souls, the record of your providence, your sovereign decrees in history, the glories of your creative power manifest in all of this world and beyond. Lord, this moves us to bring to you our praises this day and to rely on you for our deepest needs and to trust in your plan for the future and to glory in the promises, to revel and take refuge in the glorious promises that were paid for once and for all by Christ's shed blood. Lord, we thank you then that in our hour of greatest need, we can bring to you our lament as we learned last week from Psalm 74 with songs and cries, Lord, deeper than words to express our deep and abiding dependency on you, our Savior and Lord. We thank you that we can bring to you our anthem, a celebration of your glory over us, over this world, over all creation, over all things. We thank you that we can bring to you our supplication, our earnest and humble request, our desire, Lord Jesus, that you might answer our prayers and intervene to help us, Lord, that we might walk in a manner worthy of our call, that we might be filled, Lord, with your provisions in order to advance your kingdom and to glorify your name. For these reasons, we thank you and praise you this day. Now, as we turn to your word, remind us of these treasures that we have before us. Lord, impress upon our souls their value and importance for our everyday walk. Lord, and I pray that we would not soon forget them, but by the Spirit's use, the means of this service today, we would hear your words, and they would be written on the tables of our heart, and they would be applied in our actions tomorrow and beyond. We thank you, Lord, that you are King of kings, Lord of lords, and so we trust you, Lord, with our lives and souls, and thank you for this time now in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a glorious honor and privilege we have to behold the word of Christ today, to set our mind and attention upon the book of Jonah. Turn with me to Jonah chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, and let's consider just these four verses today and the weight of their implication for the power of God even over kings. The title of this morning's message is The Prophet and the King. The prophet, of course, being Jonah, the king, of course, being the ruler of this great city, Nineveh. What happens when the prophet and the king clash, or what happens when the prophet meets the king? Two authorities, two individuals who are agents representing a realm. Well, we see this showdown, as it were, and its fallout, and glorious as it is in the book of Jonah, as something of an ideal case. Ideally, when a king is confronted by the prophet of God, this is what results. The aim of this morning's message is to glorify the Lord and encourage us, His church, by recounting God's power to redeem. To glorify the Lord and to encourage His church, recounting His power to redeem. And so we return to this story of redemption in the book of Jonah as we see citywide repentance And this powerful revival take place in history in such a powerful and singular way. 
Turn with me, if you haven't already, to Jonah chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. And let us stand for the reading of the Lord's Word. Would you stand with me out of reverence and let us behold these scriptures together. Jonah chapter 3, verse 6. The Word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Do you remember the word that reached the king's ears? Not a very long sermon. Only eight words as it's translated before us today. It says in chapter 3, verse 4, that Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out. Here's his sermon. Are you ready for it? Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Some might wish my sermons were that short. (laughs) But if you consider what this sermon means, it's not exactly a hopeful one. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. So even though they didn't have to sit long to hear it, the effect of that sermon would be absolutely devastating if you understood it to be infallible truth by the sovereign of the universe who created this world and of whom every king who's ever lived and will ever live serves at his absolute pleasure and can be snuffed out in a moment as he sets them up and tears them down according to his perfect will. And choosing. This was Jonah's message. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse 5 tells us how it was received by the peoples. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then proceeds with our text today. He really means it, Jonah does, when he says from the greatest of them to the least of them. In fact, the repentance. This obedience and this reverence for the Word of God was manifest from the king, the sovereign leader, all the way down to the cows, the livestock. From the greatest to the least of them, they took the Word of God seriously. Consider Jonah's message to Nineveh. It's not exactly an ideal example of a well-balanced gospel presentation we might hold up as a model for seminary students. You know, the ideal kind of mix of law and gospel doesn't really appear to be a concern for Jonah. His eight-word sermon is heavy on the judgment side of things, to say the least. And he calls out in the streets of this pagan city, 40 days you will be overthrown, destroyed. Jonah, in fact, was not interested. Jonah, as an individual, a prophet, in his personal life and thoughts and his heart, his affections, he was not interested in mercy for this city. He would later resent the fact That God was gracious to Nineveh, relenting of his uh, prophesied destruction, and he relented upon their repentance. Even the verbiage of Jonah's pronouncement recalls former devastating judgments of God. 
the term in the Hebrew overthrow has been used other places in Scripture. It was used in former days to describe the coming doom, fire raining down from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. In other words, Jonah's saying, just like Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by sulfur fire, what, what have you, from heaven, eclipsing them in a fiery, torturous death and one fell swoop of spectacular judgment, just like that happened to those cities on the plains, you can expect the very same thing in just a few weeks. Yet in spite of all this, repentance swept citywide like a wildfire of revival. In spite of Jonah's lack of desire for mercy in this city, and in spite of his eight-word pronouncement of destruction that came with a bad attitude, it nevertheless was the Word of God, and it had its effect. It cut deep into the souls, into the psyche of the citizens of Nineveh, and repentance swept citywide like wildfire. This wildfire of revival proved a moment in history, a singular event, and perhaps the most spectacular example of successful evangelism ever recorded in history. It's amazing to see what happened. So we ask ourselves, in light of these things, this context, this situation, given God's servant, given the people, who deserves the glory for this response? Was it Jonah's ministry that could claim credit? Could they fundraise off of this? Certainly not Jonah. He didn't even want this to happen. Certainly not the pagan hearers. They were the furthest kinds of people we would think from softness to the Word of God, given the context wickedness in their culture. No, the only one who deserves glory for this event is Yahweh Himself, God who can bring a city to its knees, a nation to repentance. The only wise God has done this. Glory to Him alone, who has, as we discovered last week from Psalm 74, glory to Him alone who has all power to execute and all wisdom to establish. There are similar stories recorded in Scripture. I'm thinking of Daniel this morning as I preach this. Daniel, having received the Word of God himself for a powerful pagan kingdom and king, he confessed in Daniel 2.20. Listen to these words. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Praise the Lord. This was the exclamation of praise from Daniel's lips when God gave him the interpretation to the word that he placed into the mind in the night hour of the king of the known influential world, Nebuchadnezzar, while he slept. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that was given to him sovereignly by God. The interpretation was given sovereignly to Daniel. Before he even delivers it, he praises the Lord that by his will and by his choosing and by his authority, by his power, by his sovereignty, by his wisdom and might, he is responsible for a king, even a wicked one, and the number of his days, when he will rule and when he will be torn down. Brothers and sisters, this week in our culture, there was a media mogul in Hollywood who was torn down in three days. A man who exercised brute force and power and influence. And I don't know if you've read the news. I'm not going to go into it in any detail. 
But in just a moment, a news story at God's appropriate time of choosing hit the papers, and in this pagan society, in this pagan realm, in this pagan, increasingly pagan nation that we live in, a highly influential king-like figure over an area of life was torn down in a matter of days. Last I heard, he's left the country. Last I heard, from every, virtually every news source, this man is repudiated now, where last week he was a celebrated cultural icon. This is the power of our God to rule and to reign. Let us draw encouragement, not just by that example, but ever more so from the Word of God, who shows, and God Himself, who shows through His Word that He not only has the power to dethrone a person of great influence in a moment, in humiliation, but He also has the power to humble them in repentance. And in this best case scenario, to cause them to turn from their wicked ways and to rule justly and to stand for complete reform of their entire social environment, their city, their influence. There are four things that happen in these four verses, let me submit to you, that are the response of the king to the word of God. Let us consider them. The king's fourfold response to the word of God. The prophet and the king. The prophet speaks to the king. The king responds in four ways to the prophet, we could say, to his word. Number one, he concedes his sovereignty. An absolute phenomenal response to the word of God. He concedes. That means he surrenders. He gives up. He defers. He lets it go. He says, I am not sovereign the way I once thought I am. He sets aside his authority. Number two, he commands a fast. By his authority to make a law, he commands that the people put aside self-indulgence and, th- and service of self for a moment to focus their attention on a sovereign over him, on the almighty God in whom their future rests. Number three, he calls for repentance. He calls for a turning from sin unto an acknowledgement of God Almighty. And fourthly, he confesses faith in Yahweh himself. He confesses faith in God, concedes his sovereignty, commands a fast, calls for repentance, confesses faith. This is why we should pray for our leaders. This is a key to nationwide repentance. Let me submit to you. If God's prophetic word, through the clear, unadulterated proclamation of his people, be it a minister who brings it or his church that uh, consistently confesses it, reaches the ears of leaders in our land. And if they were to do these four things, concede their sovereignty, command a fast, call for repentance and confess faith in God, let me submit to you, there would be some things that would change in this land. Perhaps here we have a key to society-wide repentance and a revival. Let us pray it happens. It has happened before. Jonah 3, 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. I want you to notice these phrases, four of them. He arose from his throne. Each one of these is extremely significant. Number two, removed his robe. Number three, covered himself with sackcloth. Number four, sat in ashes. Four descriptive ways, highly symbolic, highly important, and weighty ways of illustrating conceding authority. 
submitting to a power over himself. This king arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. This is an action of surrender, of humbling himself, of renouncing what he once uh, wore as pride and security and assurance and glory, putting aside what he once relished by way of privilege in his leadership, power, and authority over this people. He relinquished something that he once had. He deferred to a sovereign over him. He submitted to a higher power, higher ruler, higher authority, over, above, transcendent, greater. He conceded his sovereignty. He did this as illustrated in several ways. First of all, we see him descending the throne. The throne is the place that indicates it's, we see it uh, through Scripture and in history as a, a seat of authority. It's the symbolic place that represents the certified power of that leader to rule in his realm, to take charge of certain things and to order the affairs of his nation accordingly. And what does the king of Nineveh do upon this eight-word sermon? He arises from his throne. That is to say, he descends from it, he removes himself from his seat of influence, and he takes a different posture entirely. This is easy to underestimate for us because we don't live in a monarchy, but reading history, and you can imagine the scenario, it's not beyond our grasp to understand the symbolic, the symbolic power of this passage. This would be, relatively speaking, an unheard of action for a powerful ruler in the Near East to do at this time. Oftentimes, people did not distinguish very closely at all, or very particularly at all, between God and the king. The king was sort of God on earth. He was an exalted a ruler. He was the one that gave them their sense of security and assurance and identity and hope for peace and prosperity in their land. The king was acutely aware of this. He was keenly aware of the people's attention on him so that every move he made in public was governed by this pressure to appear that he deserved this position. I am competent. I am proud. I am strong. I am triumphant. I am successful. I am glorious. Look at my victory train. Look at my wisdom. Look at my riches. Look at my wealth. Look at my command. Look at my realm. Look at my authority. Look at my exploits. And he is constantly calling the people to look at all these things to verify in their minds his legitimacy over him. And now he is doing the exact opposite. What do these people see their king doing? Leaving his throne, removing himself from that posture of authority, taking off, secondly, his royal robes. Same type of thing. These robes were like none other in the country. In any given monarchy, such as we have it exemplified here, these robes represented the highest that money could buy, the most important and flashy, and, and uh, uh, you know, with all the vestments and the gold and whatever else might be laced through these garments, they represented the pinnacle of importance and achievement again. And what does he do? He takes them off. He sets them aside. He says, I am not worthy of these in this action. He says, there is one who wears robes more important and actually deserves them and has the credibility to rule. And to him I defer as I take off these robes. He changes clothes. 
what clothes does he take on? He removes his robe and he covers himself with sackcloth, the most common fabric available. Used, it's the cheapest, the most readily available, and used for the most menial, most mundane tasks like uh, packaging. Maybe a, uh, an equivalent in our day would be cardboard. You know, it's, that's what we use to package most things. You order something from Amazon, it comes in a cardboard box. It's kind of like sackcloth to us. Imagine a king dressing himself in only cardboard that he found under a bridge somewhere or gathered from a dump somewhere. And now you have a picture of the posture of humility that this individual took because he took seriously the word of God, eight words from his prophet. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 1 Samuel 19, 18 through 24, we won't turn there this morning. But it's a story of another king, Saul, and the relationship of his clothing and a prophet of God. Do you remember what happens? Paul is, or I saw, he is upset with the prophet and he keeps sending people out to kill David and so on and so forth. There's all this conflict. And the more people he sends, the more the Holy Spirit overtakes them and they begin to prophesy. Well, finally Saul says, I'm going to go myself. And he goes, and what happens is the Spirit of God apprehends him. And an act of judicial significance, Paul, uh, Saul excuse me, strips himself naked and begins to prophesy. Very strange picture indeed. But what, what happened in that moment? God tore the royal robes off of Saul by the power of his Holy Spirit and placed his words in the king's mouth. This is something you don't want to happen to you as a king by God's uh, fist. This is something that you want to do of your own will and choosing. Set aside your garments and welcome the word of God. And in contrast to Saul, the wicked king, who did not turn from his sin, but doubled down in it, this king removes his robe and covers himself in sackcloth. Finally, he postures himself in ashes. He sits in ashes. He once sat on a throne in a city that was the wonder of the world, Nineveh. It was a great city, it says right in our text. Call out against it. Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of God. Verse 3 of our chapter. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Why is that detail in the text? Well, in part to show us how much the king had to lose if he set aside the implication that look at this city, now look how amazing I am. Instead of standing, as it were, on this city as proof of his glory, he now stands in ashes and says, I am humbled before the King of kings. Before the Lord, in light of his sovereign power, every ruler stands, sits on ashes. He has nothing upon which to boast that his word would somehow overrule the word of God? When our president, when our military leaders, when they go out onto the deck of a newly constructed, you know, taking 15 years, whatever it takes, aircraft carrier, and presumes to message to us, the people, we have reason to feel absolutely secure because of our military superiority. We have a floating airport on the high seas. He needs to realize that he sits on ashes. 
He doesn't stand on an aircraft carrier and therefore boast security for his nation. Don't tell me the Lord can't crumple that ship like a bundle of toothpicks in one storm called Irma, Harvey, or whatever the other names that we heard of this year. The Lord can do it in a moment. What is the basis, therefore, for godly rule? To realize that apart from God Himself, you have no authority. You stand on ashes. Submit to His Word. So this is the picture. The king's response to the Word of God. He concedes His sovereignty. He says, I surrender. I defer to you. I take off my robes. I do not uh, boast in my city, my accomplishments, and my architectural ambitions, or, or my realm, and my reach, and my influence. None of that. And then he issues a proclamation that others would do the same. That brings up the second response. Concedes his sovereignty, he commands a fast. The king's response to the word of God continues in verse 7. He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them them not feed or drink water. This is a reformation of law. This king has now ruled, he has issued a law, a proclamation. He has published it throughout Nineveh. This is an official edict. This is a law that you must obey upon the penalty of the executive power of the king of Nineveh. This is a reformation that's taking place in these moments. The basis of law has been reformed in Nineveh and now the word of God is controlling the dictates of the king. And he says, first things first, let us all set aside any claim to pride and to authority and to self-sufficiency. And let us all realize that we sit on ashes apart from the power and the pleasure of God and His gracious hand, allowing us to live 40 more days if He sees fit before He destroys this city. Perhaps He would be gracious to us. And if we realize that, we can live longer than 40 more days. He published this proclamation throughout the realm. Daniel 6, verse 25. I'm reminded again of these parallel accounts. Realize that at this time in Israel's history, there was every apparent reason for the nations to consider Israel of no account. Uh, Nineveh, soon to be capital of Assyria, threatened the existence of the northern kingdom and eventually would take her into exile, not too many years after Jonah prophesied. Babylon, you know, was this rising, imperial, global, dominating force. They would soon overrun the southern kingdom, destroy the temple, and take everyone or take uh, tons of people into captivity. And it's in this context that we see Daniel the prophet ruling as well, or influencing the circumstances as well. Notice in Daniel 6, verse 25, in his influence on a king, then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages. This is, of course, after God has rescued Daniel from the lion's den by shutting their mouths. And King Darius is so moved by the hand of God through his prophet, it says, he wrote to all the people, nations, and languages, verse 25, that dwell on the earth, he says, peace be multiplied to you. Listen, I make a decree, 
a reformation of law is taking place in the realm of Darius. He is writing a law. Remember the former one? You'll be punished if you don't basically pray to him for three days. Now something's changing. Upon the word coming through his servant, he says, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. No longer tremble and fear before me. You see, what happened is Daniel refused to pray to him, so he was thrown in prison. But that act of law enforcement did not prove effective against God's servant. And so Darius humbled himself. He really didn't desire this in the first place. But then he said, wait, 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 something's going on here. There is a power over me. This man was dead to rights. The hungry lion's mouths were shut. There is a greater king still. Let all people tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. This is how he ruled. He goes on, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Verse 28, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Powerful. Under this commanding of a fast, we see not only this law, but we also see the extent of this decree. He says, by the decree of the king, back in our text, Jonah 3, again, verse 7, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed on drink or drink water. The decree, this message of surrendering to the sovereignty or conceding to the sovereignty of God is issued absolutely extensively. Everyone from the greatest among them to the least, even to the animals, he says, the king says, this law applies, this edict applies. It extends, that is to say, to every area of life for which the people are called to steward. You must worship the Lord in your fields, worship the Lord with your flocks, Worship the Lord with your possessions. Worship the Lord in this city. Let your whole being recognize the authority of the King of Kings. We're seeing here there is a whole scale worldview renovation, a rethinking of the entirety of life in light of the Word of God, this eight-word sermon. Everyone from man to beast is under the authority and rule of the Lord. Again, we won't turn there. There is a contrast in Saul. 1 Samuel 15, 10 through 23. God gives a command. Destroy the Amalekites and what? Their livestock. Saul disobeys. He does not see the command of God extending to the livestock. Saul did not extend the command of the prophet to the livestock and thus proved unfaithful and discredited in his office. And at that moment, he lost his credibility as a king. Why? Because he pretended that there was an area of life or a category of his rule that he could kind of do his own thing and make up his own rules. And as long as he pleased God and over here, he could do kind of what he wanted over there. He was judged for that. Now, in contrast to that, we see the king of Nineveh extending the command of the prophet across the scope of life from the nobles, even the king, down to the cattle. Finally, we see this picture of humility, fasting, and sackcloth, sacrificing self-indulgence to recognize divine dependence. 
Let me say it more simply. Sacrificing self to recognize God. Laying aside service of self in service of the Lord. This is the picture of fasting. This is the picture of sackcloth. He says, let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from violence that is in his hand. In Nehemiah chapter 9, God's people are called back after their exile. They're given a second chance to establish the nation, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Perhaps you remember this moment. This reconstitution of the nation was attended by several things. An entire day worship service for one, but more than that. Nehemiah 9.1, listen. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. It's a virtual recapitulation of Nineveh's acts of repentance at the reconstitution of Israel after their deliverance from exile under Cyrus. They stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter they made confession and worshipped. Do you see all the elements are there? Sackcloth, fasting, earth on their heads, this picture of humiliation, of humility before the sovereign. There's also the reconstitution of the nation. The nation is starting over. It's being reformed. The word of God is featured as the absolute authority. And so the nation is reformed on the right foot again. Where do you think they learned this? If not, well, the Lord had instructed them through his word, but I submit to you he had also instructed them through the testimony of Nineveh and Jonah. Jesus says as much. He says in the final day, the men who repented at the preaching of Jonah's eight-word sermon will rise up in judgment against you because the Son of Man, incarnate in the flesh, has brought a message of his kingdom to you and you harden your ears against it. Matthew 12, 41. Well, there was a time in Israel's history where they didn't harden their ears and actually learn something from the Ninevites, learn something from the wicked pagans. When the word of the Lord comes, you better concede to his sovereignty. You better uh, humble yourself. You better fast. You better put yourself in a place of receiving his word with humility and not presuming to control him, but submitting yourself to him. The day of atonement was the only time that I know of in the law, which was attended by a fast, Leviticus 23, 26 through 32, which again reminds us that when you're seeking forgiveness for your sins, Fasting was an, appropriate, uh, was an appropriate sign to attend that act. So there we have it, the king's twofold so far response to the prophet, conceding his sovereignty, commanding to fast. Number three, this builds on this point, calling for repentance. The king calls for repentance. You notice in his edict that he instructs the people to take seriously this word that has been preached by the prophet, the cantankerous, hesitant prophet Jonah. Again in chapter 3, 8, But let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. 
First of all, he, and he adjures them. He commands them to call out mightily. What does that phrase mean? It's like we talked about last week in supplication, this earnest and humble appeal. It's a desperate cry that affirms the power to which you are bringing your request and also admits your weakness and helpless state and indeed deserving of judgment state. He says, call out mightily. Notice, though, this is the same, if you look in the original language, the same phrase that is used earlier in the text when Jonah is commanded in 3.2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Jonah was highly motivated to call out judgment on the city. He wanted it destroyed. So uh, Jonah was earnest. Didn't take long for the message to spread. He spread it, no doubt, with passion. He called out mightily to the people. And the answer, or well, it, what the king took from this was, is our response in repentance better be as earnest as the message has been, has come to us. The prophet has called out mightily to us. He's said that we are seriously deserving of judgment. We better call out mightily to the Lord and say, we are seriously dependent on your salvation. Take this seriously with every fiber of your being, with absolute sincerity, with brokenness of spirit, with poverty of spirit and soul. Make your entreaty and request before the Lord only that He might spare us. Call out mightily. Secondly, He commands them to turn. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Two things, evil way, speaking of the internal the, uh, the things, the ways of life and thinking, the philosophy, the religion, the presumptions that they have lived by turn from that evil way. Turn is a perfect word for repentance. To leave behind that which you formerly owned and knew and identified with. Turn from that way unto the way, the truth, and the life in its New Testament fulfillment. Unto Jesus Christ, unto salvation, unto a Messiah whose death can avert your own because your sins of great violence in your hands have been paid for by His shed blood on Calvary. This is the gospel in as many words. He says, turn from your evil way, but He says more, He says, and from the violence that is in your hands. And what does the violent hands refer to? The preeminent sins of the nation. The Assyrians were a violent people. Some have said the inventors of terrorism. They would strike fear in, into the heart of their enemies in absolute terror because they, they uh, spared no creative measure to torture them. And I, it's even, it can't even be repeated in a uh, respectable environment like this, the great lengths that they took to absolutely, in twisted ways, torture their enemies. And this was the sort of bloodthirsty uh, lust that this culture had for violent things. They were attracted to violent things. They loved uh, movies where gratuitous violence would be displayed on the screen, as it were, if you were to translate it into modern times. They uh, filled their minds and their heads and their fantasies with the destructive power of their own hands and subduing their enemies. They 
carved it on their walls. They celebrated it in their songs. They sang and they worshipped their false gods for allowing them to create piles of their enemy skulls at the gate of the city. They did these types of things. They cheered as candy was thrown at their parades. You can imagine our scenario. But in this parade wasn't all the businesses of Nineveh. No, it was the slain and it was the, uh, those who had been tortured and maimed that were conquered by surrounding nations. The people love these sort of spectacles. The king is calling them to turn from them. No more parades in this city where sin is a spectacle that is celebrated through the streets of this town. No more. It's done now. Turn from your ways and turn from the violence that is in your hands. This is the call for repentance. This brings up the final point this morning. Confessing faith in Yahweh, the one true God. Again, keys to nationwide repentance. The king responds to the word of God by conceding his sovereignty, commanding a fast, calling for repentance, and finally confessing faith in the one true God. He says, verse 9, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. He is placing his fortunes and the future of his city in the sovereign hands of the God who created him, who breathed breath into his lungs, who sustains the universe by the word of his power, who sets kings up, tears them down, as allowed Nineveh and its common grace to even exist. This is the God to whom the king of Nineveh makes his appeal and instructs the people to turn in this context. Who knows? He may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger. And the idea in the language is, let us turn from our violence. Let us turn from our wicked ways. And perhaps God will turn from his hand of justice to his hand of mercy. And in our repentance and his salvation, this city can be revived. And we can live perhaps. He does not say this presumptuously. presumes nothing. He doesn't act like an entitled saint. He acts like a desperate sinner. Verse 10, God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. He relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Wow. Praise the Lord for his mercy. Nabu, I think that's how you pronounce it, is <clears throat> a huge temple, even in the ruins. I think is still, uh, the archaeologists have dug up this temple to Nabu. He was a god in Nineveh at this time, presumably. Nabu's name meant speaker, announcer, herald. Nabu was a false prophet, a guy with a beard kind of like mine, only taller with a funny cone-shaped thing on his head, long robes, and it was kind of this picture, much like me, of the ideal man. No, I'm just kidding. I realize this analogy is falling apart in self-aggrandizement. No, so this Nabu guy, he's this uh, interesting figure, and he represented the prophet, the one uh, who spoke with authority for the people. He was the speaker, the announcer, and the herald. <laughs> it's amazing because he's absolutely torn down. Another prophet comes, and he is the one who is the speaker and the announcer and the herald as an agent of Almighty God. His name is Jonah, and he calls out the message against the city, and there's a clash of Nabu. He's supposed to be the one who calls out. He's supposed to be the announcer. He's supposed to be the herald. But now we got this stranger, madman, wandering through the city saying we're going to be destroyed in 40 days. 
What a clash of authorities. False God meets the one true God in an unlikely package. This wasn't an invasion by a superior force. And believe me, if, if Nineveh had been conquered by a superior war force, they probably would have worshipped the gods that conquered them. But this is something different. This is the lone voice of one man with an eight-word sermon that came with the authority of God alone behind him. And they submitted. They surrendered. And Nabu was destroyed. And Yahweh was exalted in his place. I'll bet you that temple turned into a place of worship of the one true God. I'll bet you men, enterprising men with chisels, tore that ugly edifice down in a moment when they realized what a stupid idea to pretend like a piece of stone can speak to us and for us and what have you. They had met the true mediator, God himself. There's precedent for this. All kings are humbled by their own volition or by the heavy hand of God. It's hard to resist cross-referencing to Daniel over and over again. We won't go there this morning, but consider Daniel 4, 34 through 37. You'll remember a similar story, Nebuchadnezzar. He is forced to be humiliated by the heavy hand of God. He doesn't respond in repentance when God brings his message right away. Instead, he eats grass for a long period of time. God takes his reasoning away from him. He's reduced to like one of the cows of Nineveh groveling and can't even make a a cogent sentence uh, on his lips for uh, this long period of time until such time as he recognized the sovereign over him and he was reinstated as king. And similar to this story, he issued a decree and said, the king of kings and lord of lords, he is the true sovereign. I serve at his pleasure. In closing this morning, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. How do we apply these words all the way back thousands of years ago to our context today? I've maybe taken a stab or two at it in the course of this message. But I think a great text to attach to our application for these words comes in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And you'll remember this command for us. These are instructions for the church through Paul's writings to Timothy. He says in verse 1, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Amen. So when we lift up our supplications, our prayers, our intercessions, and our thanksgiving for those who are in authority over us, for those who are kings in high positions, as it were, in our nation, what things ought we to pray for? Pray that their response to the Word of God, well, first of all, pray that the Word of God would be brought to bear to them, that God's ministers would bring it unadulterated in clarity, convicting truth. And pray that their response would be to concede their sovereignty to the Lord. Pray that they would do things like command a fast, that there would be a reform of the very laws in our nation to reflect the ultimate foundation of law through the one law, ultimate lawgiver himself, Jesus Christ. Pray that they would call for repentance, repenting themselves and calling for it in their realm and pray that they would confess faith in the one true God who is manifest in the proper time in the testimony of Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and man. Can you imagine the peaceful and quiet and godly and dignified life 
that we would enjoy if this happened in this land? Pray that it would. God has done it before. He can do it again. And it can happen in our day. Let not our faith be small. Let us be vigilant, at least in the meantime, to proclaim the truth without reservation. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we've had to set our mind aright according to your scriptures. We thank you for the perspective that we are able to draw from the reassuring words of timeless truth. Words that never fail, fade away, but always return. Lord, accomplishing that which you have sent them to do. So Lord, I pray that we would be faithful like Jonah, whether you give us eight words to say or to live our lives in light of truth, in spite of a culture that is so against an antichrist, the message of the gospel, that we would nevertheless, without compromise, proclaim the infallible words of Christ in our life, our actions, and our changing decisions, behaviors, in our confession of these words that we have read today. And may that be a testimony to those around us that they might realize they stand on ashes apart from you. But if their feet are placed on Christ, they will one day be welcomed into a kingdom that has no end. They will come in. There will be a new heavens and new earth. They will be, there will be prosperity and riches and glory beyond our imaginations when we finally see the consummation of all things in Christ. Here is salvation. Here is assurance. Here is security. Here is hope. Here is true godly rule. Lord, may we concede to this and may others in our nation as well. We pray for those who rule over us. We pray that you would convict them. We pray that the message would come as a cutting corrective measure to the degree that they have placed their hope in things other than you. May they concede their sovereignty, not rest on their power, but seek to be, Lord, but, but, but seek to be in good standing with you before your throne. May they command fasts, Lord Jesus, and call for repentance in our land. May they confess faith in the one true God that we might see a revival in this nation, just like happened under Nehemiah, just like happened in Daniel's Babylon and Persia and Nineveh, all to the praise of your great name. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.